On September 11th, 2001, the United States, as many of you know, was attacked unexpectedly by a terrorist organization known as Al-Qaeda. The images of that day were seared into our consciences. The images, so startling, so surprising, even now, conjuring up memories in your own mind. The tragedy to those days were talked about around dinner tables, water coolers, played out across this new medium called cable news. Even many years later, now being over 20, when the conversation comes up concerning that particular day, no doubt, someone or some point in that conversation, they'll ask you, where were you on that day? Many of you this morning who were alive during that attack can remember exactly the moment that it occurred. Maybe you were arriving early at work that morning at school. You can remember the images, the confusion, the emptiness of the streets. You can perhaps even remember what you were wearing. It was such a tragic and traumatic event in your life, so surprising that it was as if the images were burned upon your memory forever. And similar to that event in our own lifetime, the people of Jerusalem experienced similarly the execution of Jesus on Calvary. In fact, when this stranger bumps into two of Jesus' disciples, they ask him, what do you mean you don't know what's happened? This, the whole town has been in an uproar. The whole community has been crying out. It's been a very confusing day. Everyone is talking about this. Just as in the days following September 11th, you probably didn't go a day without talking about it. Without remembering what had happened. The images were seared onto the conscience of those in the crowds that watched and witnessed what everyone knew was an innocent man who was executed by a foreign government occupying their land. And as we think about this story this morning before us, as we think about what they were discouraged about, how their entire hopes and dreams became dashed in a moment, and how Christ graciously and lovingly pointed them back to Him through the Scriptures. Now, in this last chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke does not leave his purpose behind. Many, many months ago, in fact, it was about a year and a half ago, when we started our study through Luke's Gospel, we noted right out of the beginning that Luke set forth his purpose, and that was to tell his friend Theophilus, a Christian believer, to give him an orderly account of the things that he had come to know and believe. 
Luke the physician, like a great historian, details and chronicles the life and ministry of Jesus. But he's more than just a historian. He's, he's applying the theological meaning as he goes. He's pointing us to the purpose of the story. And everything up to this point has been building to this climax of the resurrection. From what the angels had sung at Jesus' birth to what we witnessed through the words of Luke in the last few weeks. We have heard from a number of eyewitnesses. The women who followed Jesus had witnessed the empty tomb. Two angels, we are told, were witnesses to the reality that Jesus was not dead, but that He was alive. And Peter himself, that chief apostle, the one whom Christ would build His church upon, the confession of Peter, he goes to the empty tomb and finds it just as the woman had reported. But up to this point, we really don't know if He's alive or not. We don't know if he has really truly risen. Maybe somebody's just taken his body. Maybe they've, they've hid it away. We've not actually witnessed and seen him. Well, friends, now what we have in the next uh, two weeks is considering these physical appearances of Jesus. Jesus didn't rise just merely spiritually, but physically inheriting a new body that he now has upon him. Well, friends, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're going to consider this morning verses 13 through 35, what is the longest narrative passage in all of Luke's gospel, and intentionally so, I think, because Luke is driving home, this is the main idea. This is what is going to give Theophilus the confidence and the assurance that he needs. Luke chapter 24, it's found on page 885 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. So we encourage you to open that and follow along as we consider this story this morning. Luke records under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other uh, as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered them, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our own company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And Jesus said to them, 
O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going. Jesus acted if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Friends, as we consider this passage this morning, we see the necessity of Scripture. As Jesus reveals himself physically to his disciples and appears to them in his resurrected form, he does not immediately point to his physical body as the means of faith and confidence. Rather, notice what Jesus does. Just as the angels did with the women who had gathered at the empty tomb, so Jesus does not seek to prove the resurrection by his physical body, but by pointing the disciples to the Scriptures. You see, the Scriptures were necessary to know our need for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of God's people. You know, one of the temptations that you might face this morning is no different than perhaps Theophilus. Theophilus didn't have the opportunity to see Jesus physically, to touch the, the nail holes in his hands and his feet, to touch the side as Thomas had pleaded with Jesus to do so. You remember what Jesus said to Thomas in John's Gospel? Blessed are those who believe without seeing. In other words, what Jesus is demonstrating and what Luke is seeking to give confidence to Theophilus is that you don't need to physically see Jesus to believe that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. You don't need, brothers and sisters, to get on a plane and fly halfway across the world to Israel and to go to Jerusalem and find a tomb that is empty to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. All you need is your Old Testament. All you need is the Scriptures. And you too can have confidence that Jesus is alive. So the purpose of our time this morning is to give us spiritual eyes to see our need for Jesus through our diligent study of Scripture. As we study God's Word, the Spirit gives us eyes to see the risen and ascended Lord. And so our passage this morning presents to us three necessities. So if you take notes, there's three main 
ideas that I want to hang our thoughts on this morning. Three necessities. Number one, the need for spiritual eyes. The need for spiritual eyes. These disciples couldn't see Jesus without divine intervention. They were blinded from seeing who he truly was. And I'm going to show you through Luke's gospel that every time Jesus sought to prove his purpose and mission, you'll see the disciples struggling to see and believe. Number two, we'll see the need for Christ's atoning work. Jesus will make emphatically clear to his disciples that it was necessary for these events to take place. That had these events not transpired according to God's divine plan, then there would be no redemption of God's people. And then third and finally, we will see the need for Scripture to know Christ. The need for Scripture to know Christ. That that you and I can leave here this morning with an overwhelming assurance that Christ Jesus is alive. That He is the risen and ascended Lord. Number one, we see the need or the necessity of spiritual eyes. The necessity of spiritual eyes. Let's recap again what we've just thought about. Well, first, we're told right out of the gate in verse 13 that that very day, so we're still on Sunday. It's still the first day of the week. And we have two disciples who are returning home from the Passover celebration and all the events that have transpired. These two individuals, one of which is unnamed, the other named Cleopas. They're on a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to an unknown place, we're not sure where this is, named Emmaus. A seven-mile journey would have taken somewhere around an hour and a half to two hours these folks were used to walking around, unlike us, and so they could have probably got this done in, a day, in an hour and a half. It was, we were told, late in the day, the sun was beginning to set, Tuesday, or excuse me, Monday was soon to be upon them, and they were conversing with one another, and we we're told that they were sad. All of their hopes and dreams had come to a crashing halt. Everything that they thought about Jesus was being undone. They had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who would usher in the kingdom of God. But all they could see was a man whom they once admired die a gruesome death. And now, they're not sure where his body is. Surprisingly, we were told that a visitor, a stranger, accompanies him on this journey. Of course, for the reader... For you and I, we know that it's Jesus. We're kind of clued in on everything, but they themselves aren't. Feel the tension of it. They're walking along. This stranger comes, knows nothing about what's happened, and they're like, friend, where have you been? What do you mean you don't know? What do you mean you don't know? Now, the key to this whole thing is found there in verse 16. Look, Look with me there. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Anytime in your Bible, and oftentimes in the original language, and there's this sort of passive verbal idea, we're to understand that this is the divine restraint. In other words, God was the, was the one that was the agent acting upon their eyes. 
he had withheld their eyes. And each time in Luke's gospel, Jesus taught his disciples concerning the necessity of his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, each time they, their eyes were kept from seeing Jesus. Luke is driving home a theological point, which is humanity's need for divine intervention. Humanity's need for divine intervention. So, for example, in Luke chapter 9, following Peter's great confession of the Christ, we are told this, but while they were all marveling at everything that Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then Luke records this comment in verse 45. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. So that's one example. And then another just happened a few weeks ago, we considered in chapter 18. In chapter 18, Jesus, again, as he is drawing near to Jerusalem, he tells this, and the twelve were with him and he was talking with them. This is Luke 18, 31. See, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So Jesus says this was all planned and it's all going to be fulfilled. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and the third day he will rise. Now, he's already told them that on the third day after his death, he will rise. And then here's Luke's comment, verse 34. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Similarly here, we have these disciples blinded from what Christ has done in order for Christ to rightly teach and give them the right understanding of what he's accomplished. The point that Luke is driving is that we need spiritual eyes to be able to see Jesus, and that it is through the Scriptures, accompanied by the work of the Spirit, that we can see. At each of these times, the disciples were deliberately withheld this information so that Jesus could reveal it in his perfect way and perfect timing. This spiritual blindness is as a result of our rebellion against God. Because we have cho chosen to live life our way rather than God's way, God has judged us and blinded our eyes. Though the law is written upon our hearts, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and 2, though we know God, there's no real atheist in this world, uh, we see seek to suppress the knowledge of God. We have everything we need, yet we choose to ignore it. This is what one pastor, Mike McKinley, helpfully writes, that it is possible to look at the true source of all joy and yet still not be able to see it. They were talking with him on the road, but they couldn't recognize him. And as they recount what had transpired, Jesus responds with a rebuke. We see in this passage, don't we, the necessity of prayer for the lost? When we think of evangelism, we think of the work of sharing the gospel, we must understand that 
prayer must accompany the preaching of God's Word. That preaching apart from prayer is powerless. We need divine intervention. We need God to open eyes. And that's, of course, what God does later in the story. We ought to regularly be on our knees praying for the lost in our own community. That God would use His Word to breathe life where there is death. This is the story, of course, of the new birth of of God's promise through Ezekiel that the Spirit would come and open eyes that have been blinded that they might see and believe. How many of us even today, our testimony includes the faithful prayers of perhaps our mothers or our grandmothers or our family and friends that we came to know Christ, that our eyes were open because of the faithful prayers of our loved ones who prayed over us that we might see and believe. It is a reminder to us this morning that we ought to regularly cry out to God that we might be able to see Jesus through His Word. In rebuking them, Jesus does not cast them aside. He does not just ignore them, but He chooses to explain everything according to the Scriptures. This is what we see secondly, and that is the necessity of Christ's work. As these disciples report to Jesus all that has happened, of course, Jesus responds there in verse 25. Look there. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Notice what Jesus rebukes them. He's rebuking them because they don't believe in His Word. O foolish ones, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Then look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter His glory? Jesus consistently argued throughout Luke's Gospel of the necessity of His atoning work. The verb there, it is necessary, indicates the necessity of Christ for salvation. We might say it this way, the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. That there is not many ways to reconciliation with God, but there is only one way that rebellious sinners like you and I can be reconciled to our God, and that is through the finished work of Christ. Jesus had to suffer, or there would be no forgiveness of sin. Jesus had to die, or there would be no penalty paid in full. Jesus had to raise again from the dead. He had to rise or there would be no victory over death. Consider even this. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then His words would be meaningless. But of course, Jesus did all of these things according to the Scriptures. And He is glorified. This is what we'll consider next week in the ascension, that Jesus is not only the risen Lord, but that He is the ascended Lord. He is the one who rules and reigns over all things. He is the sovereign one. He is king over the cosmos. His perfect life, so that all those who would repent and believe in Him would be saved. It is necessary Brothers and sisters, we hold to this doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ tightly. It is a central doctrine. 
It is not a secondary, it is a primary doctrine. We believe the only way to be saved is by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means your good deeds, your impressive bank accounts, your generous giving, none of those things will merit God's salvation. You must trust consciously in the finished work of Christ. You must understand that Jesus bled on Calvary's cross for your sin, not merely your neighbor's sin. For your sin, for your rebellion, Jesus was nailed to Calvary. For your sin, Jesus died the death that your sin deserves, not merely your family's. You must believe That Christ was raised from the dead to vindicate and prove, or as the Apostle Paul says, for our justification. You must believe. But we also gain a sense of confidence, don't we? That if Christ was the one who accomplished it, that it must be finished. It must be complete. If the eternal Son of God was the one who set forth this plan and who accomplished this plan, then brothers and sisters, we ought to have a tremendous assurance. These things did happen according to God's plan. He was the Son of God. He did die and He did rise again. We also have a sense of assurance in the doctrine of election. Not the election of sinners to salvation, but the eternal predestined plan for Jesus to die. Notice, look with me into the text again. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Or as we've heard earlier, was it not what the Scripture said? Or in Ephesians chapter 1. So often we focus on our own predestination, which is true in the text. But more than that, it is the predestined plan that God would send His Son to die in the place of sinners. Friend, we ought to have tremendous encouragement this morning that Jesus was not a mere victim of fate, but that He willingly died the death we deserve. Don't you see the depth of His own love for you? In love He predestined. We ought to find encouragement to know of the necessity of Christ's work, and to know that it is a completed work. But how does one's spiritual eyes become enlightened? If it is true that we're spiritually blind, if it is true that Christ completed the atoning work, well, how do we apply these two? How do we seek to apply Christ's work to our blind eyes? How does our eyes get opened? How can we see Jesus? Well, thankfully, Jesus teaches us. Jesus teaches here through the Emmaus Red story that He removes the disciples' blindness through the instruction of His Word. What is God's plan to enlighten blind eyes? What is God's plan and purpose? How is He going to do it? How, what's the means and mechanism of it? Well, I think it's right here in this text, verse 27. And beginning with, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. This is our third point. The necessity 
of Scripture. Again, I just want to show to you, as I, I hope argued well last week, that you don't need some apologist to give you high-sounding arguments to prove to you the resurrection of Christ. All you need to simply do is do what these brothers did, and that is believe the Scriptures. Believe Jesus' words. He said it. This is a matter of faith in the Word of Jesus, in the words of Christ. In other words, we come to know God's divine saving work through the divine Word. We come to apply these things. Our eyes are enlightened, illumined by the Spirit through the words of Christ. Now, as verse 27 begins, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, friends, this is just shorthand for the Old Testament. Now, the problem for us as Christians often is this, and it's sad, is we neglect the Old Testament. And I know the new year's going to be upon us soon, and you will attempt to read through the Bible again, and, and you, you might make it to Leviticus, or, or, or maybe even through Deuteronomy if you're super spiritual, but for the most of us, that'll be our only encounter with the Old Testament all of the year. Oh, occasionally we might jump into a proverb a day, uh, but even that begins to wane a bit. It feels so old and distant. I mean, who wants to read it? It, it was written, I mean, 4,500 years ago in some of these passages. Friend, you are no more close to the New Testament than you are the Old Testament. I mean, even the New Testament passages are, are 2,000 years old. I think it's wrong to, for us to assume that we are anywhere close to the cultural context of the New Testament even more than the Old Testament. But notice here that Christ, where does He take him? Friend, He takes him on a, on a journey through the Old Testament. I mean, we're not told what passages he preaches. We're not told which stories he includes. But we are told that he began with Moses and went through all the prophets. And in other words, from, from Genesis to Malachi, it's all about Jesus. Notice what he says. He interpreted. This is where we get the word hermeneutics from or interpretation. Uh, he exposited. He exposed, he, he opened, he broke open the Word and began to shine light into it. Now, of course, this is not saying that every single verse in your Old Testament points to the cross, right? So wrongly, you know, the, the tent pegs and the blood and, you know, right, you know, all that. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's not, that's not it. But that is that the overarching meta-narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. Perhaps he took him to Genesis chapter 3, to the fall, where the promised seed was given to Adam and Eve. Because of their rebellion, God had judged them, but in the midst of judgment, God gave a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then he began to teach these, these two men as they walked along this seven-mile journey about how there, there was children Surely he told them about Noah and the, and the saving grace of God saving his people from judgment because there was judgment and through judgment came salvation and glory. Surely then he told them about Abraham 
and about his son Isaac and about how Abraham was about to execute his son Isaac, but how God had provided a ram who would die in the place of Isaac. God saved his people. Surely he told the stories about Joseph and how God had providentially and sovereignly orchestrated the events of Israel in such a way as to bring them into Egypt for protection in the midst of a tremendous famine. And how 400 years went by and God raised up Moses, the one who would deliver God's people from captivity in Israel. And surely he told them the stories about how the people of God rebelled again and again against God's leaders, even wanting to have their own king and anointed Saul to be king. But even in that act, they rebelled against him. Surely he told them about David and the promises given to David the, that there would be a, a son of David who would sit on the throne forever. And throughout each of the prophets, surely he went through Isaiah 53 and talked about this suffering servant who would come and he wedded together the, the wonderful truth of this prophet, priest, and king who would come and rule and reign over God's people. This promised seed was born in Bethlehem. How Malachi and Micah, Ezekiel and Isaiah prophesied all of the events concerning the Christ and how each of them had been fulfilled. And we're told that as he preached, their hearts burned within them. The necessity of Scripture. They needed to hear God's Word. Friend, no more than they do we need God's Word. Not merely our New Testament, but our Old. What Scripture do you think the apostles were using when Peter stood up on Pentecost and preached his first sermon, the New Testament was just being written. He was preaching the Old Testament. Friend, let me commend the reading of the Old Testament through the lens of Christ's redemptive work. See how each of the stories of the narrative points to man's desperate need of a Savior. How we cannot be saved through the law. How we cannot save ourselves, but how we are in desperate need of a Christ who would come and live a perfect life and die the death and rise three days later. J.C. Ryle writes this, Next to praying, there is nothing so important in practical religion as Bible reading. By reading that book, we may learn what to believe, what to be, and what to do, how to live with comfort, and how to die in peace. Friend, I wonder, what does your regular Bible intake look like? What does it look like? Is it just a cold exercise of rote reading, gaining a number of historic facts, being able to, you know, stump your Sunday school class members with all of your Bible trivia knowledge? Or is it to know Christ more fully? I think perhaps one of my favorite verses in all of this comes there in verse 32. 
Then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I think one of the greatest tests of whether or not we're reading the Bible for transformation is whether or not our heart burns when we read You know that excitement when you read the scriptures, your eyes are open and you can see it and you can know it, those light bulb moments where it becomes real to you and understandable. It's like the fog is lifted and there it is, the Christ beheld before you and you bow and worship. And those private times in your, in your study when you're, you're studying the scriptures and, and praying and pleading and it's been a cold winter, it's been a, it's been a, cloud, it's been a cloud-filled uh, year, and you're, you're wondering, uh, when is the Bible going to become real to me again? And then all of a sudden, that fog lifts, and you can see the Jesus who died on Calvary for you, and your heart burns within you. Or that sermon that you listen to, when for, for whatever strange reason God used in His own providence, though you can't remember the points of the sermon, you know that your heart began to be stirred as you looked and you beheld Christ in His glory. We're told that when their eyes were open, that Jesus vanished from them. There's a lot we could think about with that and this new resurrection body that Christ has. But I think the point is clear. You do not need to see Jesus physically in order to have faith in Jesus presently. You do not need to see Jesus. And, and there may be some here this morning that says, man, if I could only see Jesus, if I could only touch him, then I would believe. If I was one of those guys, I would have recognized Jesus. I would have seen him, and I would have began to worship him. I would have asked him a lot more questions than these guys did. Friend, that's, that's no way to true faith. Believe without seeing. Trust Jesus. When you are trusting, you are not trusting the words of mere men. You are not trusting the words of preachers. You are trusting the Word of God's eternal Son, Jesus. Your dependence upon His Word and His promises as revealed through the Scriptures. Jesus opens their spiritual eyes. Notice here, lastly, that as they urged him to stay, as they were going on the road, it was, it was late in the evening. They were exhausted. They've just walked seven miles. Of course, the events of the day have physically and spiritually been draining. They're ready for bed. They're, they need some nourishment. They need to eat. And then this surprising plot twist begins to fall forward, doesn't it? They, they sit down with this stranger who has just preached to them this wonderful sermon about the Christ, their hearts are stirring within them. There's sort of anticipation in the air. And they just think they're going to have a normal meal. They're, they're just, they're hungry. I don't know if they were paying attention at all much, but, but all of a sudden they, they turned and they saw. Now I want you to know something, friends. This is Cleopas and an unknown disciple. This is not one of the inner 
This is not one of the 12 or one of the 11 now. These brothers were not in the upper room. This has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. This has everything to do with another event in the ministry of Jesus where he took bread and broke it and displayed the glory of God. And that is known as the feeding of the 5,000. And these men would have been there. They would have been witnesses that day when God had miraculously, through Christ, multiplied those loaves and those fish and they, they saw heaven open, the power of God on display. And they broke bread. Notice what he says. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. Friend, have you ever wondered why Christians like to eat a lot? You just thought it was like a Baptist thing. Friend, it is because it is through the community of the saints and the breaking of bread that God's power is put on display in saving sinners for God's glory. Just as Christ had done through the feeding of the 5,000, so Christ put on display His miraculous power in that He took blind men and now they could see. And when we sit around the dinner table together, we witness the power of God to save sinners. We don't sit alone, but we sit around a table with sinners who've been saved by grace through faith. That God has in His glorious power saved a people for His own possession. It's no wonder the early Christians there in Acts would gather around, break bread. Surely some allusion, you could say, is towards the Lord's Supper here. But I think that's diminishing the power and glory of what we see. Jesus opens their spiritual eyes through teaching. And it is the Scriptures that, there in the Scriptures that we learn. We learn the necessity of Christ's work. The need for our spiritual eyes to be awakened. The Scriptures are where we see the demand that Christ must suffer and die and be raised again and thrown into glory. Brothers and sisters, salvation is only through the work of Christ. In the 18th century, there was a man named John Wesley. John Wesley was destined to be a preacher. It was commissioned upon him by his family he would study early at Oxford, and he was a master orator and teacher. At one point in his early ministry, Wesley had a desire in his own heart to see the heathen, that's what he called them, come to know Jesus. And so, he got on a boat and went to Georgia. And there, in this particular time, of course, Georgia was a prisoner colony, or the British Empire. And he went and shared the gospel with these heathens. And when he was there, he met some other Christians, Moravian Christians, and these Moravians just seemed to be different. They seemed to have a sense of fervency about their prayers. Uh, they just seemed to really know Jesus more than he. For him, it was just mere academics 
He knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. A diligent study of the Scriptures. And on the boat ride back to England from Georgia, as he was forced to be with these Moravians, he had come to the point and realization in his own life that he wasn't a Christian. Imagine that. A pastor not saved. And so he called up a friend of his. He asked him, he said, what shall I do because I lack saving faith? And this friend advised him to continue preaching he continued preaching faith until he had it. And then once he had it, to keep possession of it. But for Wesley, this didn't work. He continued to wrestle and struggle and wallow in his own sinfulness. But then finally, on May 24th, 1738, Wesley had an experience that changed his life forever. A number of friends of his had gathered there in Oxford to go and um, to hear a reading. It was in the evening, and this is what Wesley records in his own words. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate, where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. About a quarter before nine, While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. What Wesley describes there, that his heart was strangely warmed, it is what we know as the doctrine of regeneration. His spiritual eyes were given, and he could see Jesus. Friend, the prayer for each of us this morning is that God, by His Spirit, through His Word, might reveal to us the risen and ascended Lord, that we too might have assurance of salvation through Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illumine our eyes to see. To see that Christ Jesus did die in our place. He died the death that we deserved, but that He is no longer dead, but that He is alive that He did raise three days later, that He did ascend to the heavens, and that He now reigns and rules over all 